Friends, we all know that there are many health benefits to running, but did you know that running will help improve your immune system? Moderate amounts of exercise will improve your immune system and help reduce the risk of infection. So why not run? It makes no sense why you wouldn't. So definitely lace them up and let's hit the road. And if you want any help with that, why don't you check out qrunningco.com. The Quinton Running Company has been working with runners for the last 10 years and helping them improve their running, become better runners, and overall feel really good. So if you want to learn more, go to qrunningco.com and check us out. That's qrunningco.com. Let's go for a run. Friends, episode four, lane one, we sit down with Emily Ellison, the executive director of the St. Simons Land Trust, located here in beautiful coastal Georgia, here in Glynn County. She has a great background and a very interesting, well, I shouldn't say interesting, well, it is interesting, but not, well, it is interesting and a very cool roadmap that she took to get to her current position and I'm really excited for you guys to hear that story because it, 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 like many things that each of us decide to do in life, we're inspired by different things. And, you know, she was inspired by, by something as, well, I don't want to give it away. Listen, listen to the conversation. You'll hear what inspired her that got her on her journey of, 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 of the journey that she's on. So I hope you guys enjoy that conversation. Also, just wanted to take a moment to check in, see how everybody's doing. How's your training going? It's starting to get a little warm here in Southeast Georgia, so make sure you're hydrating, staying on top of that. You don't want to get caught behind the hydration bus. You want to be on the hydration bus. Make sure you're taking in, um, a, you know, the appropriate amount of of, of hydration. And uh, that does not mean sweet tea, although you can treat yourself to some sweet tea. I'm seeing races opening up. I'm seeing more people in our social media feed posting race picks. That's really exciting. Races are, are coming back online. Speaking of which, we have one that we're helping or we're race directing, uh, the Vidalia Onion Run out in Vidalia, uh, which is part of their Onion Festival. That's taking place April 24th. We have a 5K and a 10K and a fun run. So check it out. We will have some COVID precautions because we still want to be good stewards towards our fellow humans. So head on over to Run Sign Up, look for that information, and register and join us. We also have redesigned 10K and 5K courses. The courses are challenging. You know, Vidalia is, uh, you know, it's got some hills. So it should be a fun, fun um, afternoon, or no, I should say fun morning, which then will hopefully lead to a fun afternoon for those of you that decide to go to the festival. So definitely check that out on Run Sign Up. Also, what we're going to be having... In our next episode, we'll give you guys more of an update on the races coming up in the fall and some of the other ones that we're helping to produce, race direct, and etc. So check for those, and you can kind of connect with us if you don't want to wait for that update, either by going to our Facebook page at Q Running, 
You'll find that on Facebook if you go to Lane One on Instagram and also Q Running on Instagram. You follow those pages and you'll be able to get those updates. Uh, and then one more thing, <clears throat> as I mentioned early on, this first group of conversations focused on women um, since it was Women's History, since it is Women's History Month, since today is March 31st. And we're working on the next set of conversations and we're figuring out what the theme is going to be. I have some ideas on what that's going to look like. And um, so we're going to get those out uh, hopefully in the next probably two or three weeks. So we'll have a little bit of a hiatus after this group of conversations while we work on the next grouping and we'll go from there. And then I'm really excited to say that we're working on a real fun project or thematic project, I guess is another way of saying it that will drop in June. And we're lining up those conversations. We've had some conversations uh, for the podcast for uh, our June. Well, we'll just, for now, we'll just say our June theme, but we'll have more information on that coming up. And that's it. So guys, thanks again for the support and for the feedback. And uh, let's go for a run. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I'm excited. You have been on my radar of people to interview because of your rich background in nonprofit work and with some of the exciting things that you've done personally. But we connected initially when we worked on one of the properties that you guys manage through the St. Simons Land Trust when you guys were interested in putting together a fun run, right? Exactly. Or, or a run. No, yeah, it was a fun run. <laughs> I had fun. <laughs> and so just just quickly or briefly, what was the thinking around wanting to use a run as an approach for for the for the um for that event? Sure. Really was to bring families get families, um, younger folks out on our properties. And we thought a run through there would be great. There was, as you know, uh, about a mile and a half loop, which is called Polly's Trail. And we had just really opened up that property. We had not really had the public on it yet. So it was kind of a great way to, um, have some other folks out there. Uh, Fuse yogurt was there and sandy bottom bagels and different things and have some, some things for the kids, including um, someone from Sea Island came, the head of their nature center and brought a couple snakes and things. And then we had artifacts from some of our properties. So it was a way to do that and just kind of open it up in a real casual way. But we had no idea how to put on a run. Uh, 
in the earlier... Well, neither do I, so I'm still wondering why you guys asked me to. <laughs> we did it because of our, our mutual friend, Bev Lotvala, who right. um, is a runner, and she said, oh, you need to call Rogelio. He knows how to put these on. And so it was a terrific fit. And in the beginning, we had envisioned doing something much grander and broader, uh, maybe trying to get the county to block off a main artery, and we have people running all over the island, and then decided, okay, that's probably a little too ambitious. So we brought you in, and and it worked beautifully. And as you know, that was pre-COVID, and that's prevented us from doing many of the things that we had hoped to do last year. 2020 was the St. Simon's Land Trust 20th anniversary, so we had lots of events scheduled and really had to cancel or postpone all of those. But want to pick back up again and hope we can work with you. In 2021. Yeah. So you mentioned 2020 was the 20th anniversary of the Land Trust. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you've been with the Land Trust for a couple years now, right? Since 2018. 2018. So how Let's go back in the time machine a little bit and maybe talk a little bit about how your journey to your current position, which is now the executive director, correct? Right. Well, I came on uh, January 2nd, 2018 to really fill in while someone was on maternity leave. <laughs> I had already <laughs> retired maybe a couple of times. Uh My husband and I uh, had moved here permanently in 2015. He had already retired, and I had been the CEO of the YWCA of Greater Atlanta, my last job in Atlanta, and we came here, and I had no anticipation of working again. No. You know, one to throw the iPhone or BlackBerry and all the suits with shoulder pads (laughs) into the drink as we came across the The causeway. Um, and so did a lot of other things uh, from June 2015 until January 2018. Still did not want to do anything permanently right. or full-time. Uh, but I had only been here in this interim position filling in for someone for probably two or three weeks. And uh, Sue Tuttle, who is our stewardship and finance director took some of us on a tour of different properties and we went out to cannons point preserve this is before we were really doing very much on wally preserve but cannons point preserve 608 acres of protected maritime forest uh, six miles of shoreline it's a peninsula yeah And we went out to the north end where there are ruins of the Cooper Plantation. And all these tabby ruins, um, slave quarters, but mostly the ruins of the plantation home, went up into the... Is this all too much? No, no. go, no, Went up into the observation tower and looking down on these ruins and then looking out into the marsh and over to little St. Simon's Island. And I, wow, this is so important. What if this had not been protected by sure. the land trust? What if this had been the development and the golf course, mm. all that had been planned for the 608 acres? Because that area is ripe for that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So really, uh, the executive director at the time had been saying over these two or three weeks, don't you want to do this? on a permanent basis 
um, because the person who I was filling in for was coming back at the end of her leave, but she wasn't going to work full time. Gotcha. And I, I had always said, no, no, no. Well, after being at Cannons Point Preserve, I came back to the office and I walked into his office and I hadn't even spoken to my husband or anyone. I just said, okay, I'll do this permanently. I, I want to be involved in this. This is too important. We had had a second home here for a little while while we were still in Atlanta, but been coming to St. Simon's Island for 30-something years and saw how development was taking over, how traffic and all that, and loved, loved, loved this island sure. and the whole Georgia coast and really wanted to be a part of protecting it. And even before... I became involved with the land trust. Uh, what I knew was when I got down here that I wanted to do something as a volunteer around the environment. So that's how I ended up. But here. as a volunteer, right? But as a volunteer, <laughs> yeah, I had no, no thinking that I would end up with a job again. Especially, um, I remember talking to someone else about another thing, and I said, "Well, are you talking about a forty-hour job? You know, that's what I have left Atlanta to get away from." But, of course, this ended into much more much than more. a 40-hour-a-week job. But now, your roots, your roots are in, in newspapers, correct? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, those are very um, shallow roots. I wasn't there long <laughs> enough to have put down um, very deep roots. But, yeah, I was a journalist for a while and book editor and different things. And um, that's where I met my husband at the Atlanta okay. newspapers. He's a journalist and then became a um a book publisher and editor. Gotcha, gotcha. And and you've also you're a published author, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that was a different lifetime. <laughs> but My, but but no less. Um, what's the word? Um, you know, that's that's it, it's not easy to publish a book. Yeah, yeah. I, I was fortunate. I yeah. I've published um, three novels, um, and the last one is called The Picture Makers, and it was. No, it, got, it got good reviews, okay. and and uh, nothing ever made me very much money. But that's the way of of that's the world. That's the way of literature and nonprofit, it, right? That's exactly <laughs> right. Why I didn't go into technology or law? No, I know why I didn't. But um, yeah, uh, two areas where you don't make too much money. But I did um, publish books, and that's what I thought I would be doing for the rest of my life. And even after our daughter was born in 1988, um, when she was young, I, I was still writing, and I, she started elementary school or pre-K, whatever it was. I would take her to school and then come back and write and then go walk to school and pick her up. And, that, and that's kind of how I thought I would live my life. Right, but right. Then right. other things happened. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing was you read an article. I did. Yeah. Well, you really have done your research, Rohelia. Well, and this is and this is where um, it's fascinating to me. I, I was in the nonprofit sector for twenty years, also, um, not as prestigious or as um, uh, well, just not as prestigious as your career. But what I found interesting about this 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 process is that this is this is how a lot of nonprofits are started. Mm -hmm. You know, you get an inspiration from somewhere, and then people realize, man, this is hard. Yeah. Starting a nonprofit <laughs> is hard work, but you really, really, you, I mean, you guys 
went in head first. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really fascinating story. Yeah, we were, we were pretty tenacious. So um, my our daughter was, I think this was the summer before she started the fourth grade. Okay. I read an article uh, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine okay. about Carol Gilligan and, oh, I forget the name of the other woman, but they had done research on adolescent girls, mm-hmm. what happens to them, how they can, when they're younger, they have all these ambitions, mm-hmm. feel like they can do anything, and <clears throat> and then something happens by when they're pre-adolescent and they begin to take notice of their bodies and their hair and how other women are looking whether it's in magazines or in movies or tv anyway long long story short of um realizing okay my wonderful fourth grader who just seems invincible right now just a fascinating (laughs) human being this is going to happen to her. Yeah. And what the research that Carol Gilligan and others had done was when these adolescent girls went to all girls schools, yeah. it helped them. They weren't surrounded by boys, nothing wrong with boys. God love you all. Um, <laughs> but that they, for the most part, most girls excel when they're, they're in an all-female environment in those really formative years, middle school, high school, then some on into college. So there had not been an all-girls school in Atlanta at that time in 30 years or so. There had been, there is all, um, oh, I forget the name of some of the, uh, of the schools. There had been both public and private mm-hmm girls' schools, and boys' schools in Atlanta. And then Title IX came along, Mm -hmm. and most of those went away. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking, gosh, um, there are not any schools like this for her. She would have to go to boarding school. That's not going to happen. And so she tells it that one night at dinner, I was sitting down, and I was telling my daughter and my husband about this and I put down my fork and said okay I'm going to start a girls school and statements that like that as we know come out of complete ignorance (laughs) you have no idea (laughs) what you're talking about and what you're getting into because I wasn't an educator I was a writer um I was a liberal arts major art and literature and um I wasn't a business person. I had very little notion about nonprofit, sure. the nonprofit sector, sure. what a 501c3 <laughs> was, any of those things. But luckily, I really believed in the idea. I had a great friend who knew the nonprofit world really well, and she worked at the Foundation Center in okay. Atlanta. And she ended up becoming one of my co-founders. And she said, Emily, there's lots of money out there for single gender. And I think you should do this. And she wrote down, she and I had lunch or something, I think. And she wrote down on a yellow legal pad, here are all the people in Atlanta you need to go see. Mm. Both at the Community Foundation, these different foundations, educators. 
And she said, I think you can do this. And, and I said, well, will you Go help me? me? Yeah. Will you be a co-founder? And she's, I don't know. Then later she introduced me to Brooke Weinman, who became uh, the third co-founder. Again, trying to make this very short, we, it was in the summer of 1997 that I began working on it. On a trip to New York, I visited all-girls schools that had been around for 100 years in Manhattan, and um, then came back, and once Candace Springer, the woman who was uh, knew the um, nonprofit world so well, she and Brooke and I worked on a business plan, put together the things that we needed for a 501c3. They had more experience in this mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. I did, but we were pretty much winging it as we went. And um, well, you got you got to wing it if you want to fly, right? That's exactly right. It was a wing and a prayer, and um, so we opened the doors of the Atlanta Girls School in August of two thousand. And what what was the timeline from you? Putting, Putting your, down the fork yes. was in June or July of 97. Uh-huh. I hooked up with Candace and Brooke in a more formal way when we we started, um, we created a founding board, which uh-huh. we needed for a 501c3. In um, probably February, March of 1998. Okay. And then we brought on these other fabulous women who were part of our founding board. There were eight or nine of us at that time. And we worked on it like it was a, um, a full-time job. Yeah. And it was a full-time job where we didn't get paid, but we gave money. Right. <laughs> Welcome to yeah, nonprofit. Th- yeah, that's exactly right. So we worked really, really hard, and we hired a head of school. And uh, we called on, basically, we either called on or spoke with or... You know, a thousand people. Wow. Um, before we really, I think before we hired a head of school and then she hired faculty and those type of things. But then we opened in August of, of 2000. So the, the Atlanta girls school has just celebrated its 20th anniversary as well. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. It's just a wonderful thing. It's kind of like being a parent after it's happened, you really can (laughs) claim no, uh, no credit or responsibility for, for what happens. Um, you know, lots of people involved, but you sparked the fire. And so as I'm hearing you tell that story, Emily, one of the things with, with any new venture, with anything that, you know, you set out to do, you know, that the cliche is the first step is the hardest. It seems like that was the easiest part, putting that fork down and saying, you know, yeah. I'm do something. During that process, because you're not just starting a nonprofit, it's also a school. So there's mm-hmm. the educational component, mm-hmm. there's the fiscal component, there's the board, comp- there's the, the nonprofit component. Absolutely. Right? There's all these different pieces together. The sense that I get from you in hearing that is that not that any process is smooth but i get the sense that once a little momentum grew to more momentum mm-hmm. and it kept going and growing was that the sense or were there any points along the way where you thought am i really this crazy i need to jump yeah, there out were of- a lot of those points <laughs> along the way but i you know we just really believed in it and again i it, i put the fork down but then there was a time when we knew we had to put the stake in the ground mm. we're either going to do this or we're not right 
And uh, when we began to call on other educators and whether they were being truthful or not, they, heads of other schools, they said, yeah, there's room for this in Atlanta. We should have single gender option here. They were supportive. Parents were saying, I mean, these young couples who had just had a baby, I want my daughter to go there. Yeah, Yeah, I couldn't even think that far down the road. Those girls have since graduated from the Atlanta Girls School who were just babies or kindergartners at the time. Um, So we we got lots of affirmation and we began to raise a little money. The three of us put up the first $15,000 or so. Um, We got a million dollar gift. We went to the Woodruff Foundation. They didn't give us money for maybe four or five years, but when they did, it was half a million dollars. I would say that mainly we were tenacious. And the squeaky wheel gets to grease, right? That's exactly right. It's not always the brightest, (laughs) the smartest who really succeed, the A plus students. I think it's sometimes those who just. Maybe, again, the sort of the ignorance of not knowing what you don't know, um, <laughs> that we can do this. Yeah. And by, by golly, we did. And the more people who joined the sort of movement, the more that encouraged yeah. us. We're, and then there was a time, kind of like when you're in the delivery room, there's no turning back. You, you know, got to push. We have got to push. We got to see this to... To the end, to the delivery. So now, we did. Now, prior to this, you had not had experience with nonprofits, correct? No, not really, not except really? I, I'd served on boards. Okay. I'd been a board chair of a small theater in Atlanta. Um, you know, I'd given a little but, money here and there, but never. Not on the operations side. Not right? on the operations side. Okay. No. So this opened up a new it did. World. I, yeah. I, I loved it. Yeah. I realized, okay, I'd been living a pretty cloistered environment as uh-huh. this hold up rider, even with, um, after we had our daughter and, you know, uh, and after I'd done that and been part of something with other people, I love the partnership piece. Yeah. I love not just doing something on my own, but bringing together a group of really smart, dedicated generous people um i just thought whoa this is wonderful yeah and it seems selfish to go back to the writer's garret after that and just write more <laughs> mediocre fiction and but i'm sure you wrote some fantastic grants because you got to write the grants for the yeah, money yeah i did and and the business plan <laughs> right, you know i never right. written a business plan so i wrote part of that and um so yeah it, it was great and then after that after it was, you had mentioned earlier about so many people want to start a nonprofit and right. they don't realize what it's going to take. I think there is some, I will misquote the, the exact number, but usually the nonprofits don't often have a long life. Right. After the founder goes away, dies, or says this is enough, it often begins to crumble Mm -hmm. because it was based on really the passion, um, maybe just the the personality, the powerful presence of that founder. 
And we wanted to make sure that that didn't happen, that this was going to go on long after. With the school. With the school, school. long after we. And so, again, we didn't have ambitions to be the head of school, to serve on the faculty, to do any of that. We wanted to help get it in the shape so that it would have a long life. So it would become its own yeah, and that's why it wasn't named. <laughs> Not that you the know the Emily School, the Emily School, <laughs> or the Weinman School, right. or any of those things. It was the Atlanta Girls School. So, but after we had done that and felt like it, it was time, I had been the founding board chair. After I did that and served them. It was kind of time to go back and look at these manuscripts that I had been working on and my agent thought I was going to get. And another friend and I had been working on a, a sitcom. Oh. <laughs> and because uh, she was at NBC. And, you know, again, stupidly, we thought we could do that. Um, but I didn't want to do it. Yeah. So uh, I went to a couple of friends who we're in the nonprofit sector and said, I want to keep doing this. Yeah. I don't want to go run the girls school. I can't do that. That's not my ambition, but I want to, you want I to like stay in the this. game. I want to stay doing this yeah. and feeling like what I'm doing is full of purpose yes. and it might make a difference. And so from there, uh, boardwalk consulting is a, a company, a small firm in Atlanta and they place people in nonprofit gotcha. executive positions. And so again, not really realizing what I didn't <laughs> know I could or couldn't do, I went and um, Sam Petway, just a wonderful man, he believed in me and so um, I interviewed Is that with for, the literary? L- literary? Yeah, okay. that's when I interviewed for a position to be the president and CEO of uh, Literacy Action. And that was a nonprofit that had been around 40 or 50 years at the time. And we worked with undereducated adults. Gotcha. And so I came in, stepped in. They had had a lot of financial problems, hadn't met budget in a long time, and dipping into endowment, different things. So uh, I've did heard that, that story for about many five times. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and I'm sorry, you were there how long? Five years. Five years, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so with what was your tenure with the with the girls' school? Well, it's from ongoing. I am, you know, I mean, from emeritus. when you went from the school to, oh, to the... Uh, let's see. Till about six, seven years, I guess, where gotcha. I was really closely involved gotcha, as gotcha. a board member, a board chair. Gotcha. And then after that, um, was still on the board, I think, but not as intimately involved. But it was about six or seven years... You worked with the school, not that you left it, but then yeah. you mm-hmm. went and did the work yeah, with the so literary. Yeah, so I think uh, in Literacy Action, I think I began that position in maybe 2006. Okay, okay, okay. And you were there, you said, how long? Five years. Five years? Mm-hmm. Five years. And I love that. I mean, our clients were you're all adults right. Uh, right. from 18 years old to people in their 80s. And these were people who were... F- for the most part, functionally illiterate, mm-hmm. especially the older ones. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these would be 40-year-old men, 45-year-old men, and maybe they had lost their job. When they got their job, they were able to hide the fact that they couldn't read. read. They might have been in a janitorial position mm-hmm. or whatever. And 
the world had changed drastically. Mm-hmm. Not They could no longer go in and sort of say, well, I don't have my glasses to fill this out. Now the only way they could get a job was fill a, out an application online. Mm. They couldn't read. They had no technology skills. Um, these are people who... It was all, I don't know how they functioned. Right, right. To right. tell you the truth. So my heart and soul went into this and, and still believe in it emphatically. And then we had other people who, some coming out of prison, we had some young women who were former prostitutes, mm-hmm. a lot who had been involved in drugs and alcohol. And some were great grandmothers raising their great grandchildren. And they were there because they wanted to be able to help them with homework mm-hmm. or they wanted to be able to read the newspaper or the Bible for the first times in their lives. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So one of the issues there is we really had to change the curriculum because it was based on whole language and the majority of the people who are functionally illiterate at that age, they have dyslexia mm-hmm. or some other kind of reading um, There's something that's inhibiting them from being able to learn how to So read. we really need to go back to phonics-based curriculum. Mm. So had to do research on that. We really had to um, re-engage a lot of people, mm-hmm. go back to funders who had not funded in a long time. Um, so that's kind of what we did. Right, a lot of... Right switching up the staff, the faculty, and and changing a lot of that, and raising money and getting right. us out of debt and back into where... You had to adapt. You had to... Mm-hmm. There was a landscape yeah. that was changing. But it, it was it was challenging, but I boy, I loved it. Yeah. I, it, I was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, in essence, teaching people how to read. Yeah, ex- you know, exactly. We, had, we, we funded a program, when, um, one of the programs that we oversaw was adult literacy program. Yeah. And, you know, the story is coming out of, of that program of people that, like you said, a grandmother who's in her, you know, 70s that hadn't learned how to read and was able to, you know, learn. Yeah. And it just, it, it was overwhelming for them mm-hmm. and overwhelming for the program because they were able to make that connection. So. Absolutely. And I always feel like it's educational, but in, in on a number of fronts. Sure. It wasn't just, helping to get our clients, our students educated. But it was really trying to educate the public, the funders, Mm. the governmental agencies, because often we would hear, well, they just, they need to get their GED, uh, and then they can go out and be self-sufficient. Well, even with a GED or a high school diploma, you know that. And if you're reading at a fourth grade reading level, getting the GED is not easy. Uh, you know, I used to say to board members and to donors, how about get a copy of the GED exam and imagine that you are at a fourth, fifth grade reading level and your math skills are worse still. It was so difficult to help people understand this is not something that happens if you come in and in three months you've taken a class and you've now got it. For so many of our students, this was a four or five year or longer process. And some would have to drop out because they had to go get a job or they had a sick child. 
they could no longer afford the bus fare mm-hmm. to get to our office. So, and it's still, those people who are working in literacy programs, especially adult literacy, it's just, it's really, there are a lot of challenges Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in helping the rest of the public to understand why this is so hard Mm -hmm. and why those parents are not people if they don't go to the teacher uh, principal meetings with their children. Going to the principal's office has a very scary mm-hmm. um, memory for them. And for them to go in and think, this this teacher, yeah. you know, who's gone to college and maybe grad. They're intimidating. They're inti- the, I've got to still hide the fact that I can't, can't read. read. I can't read what my daughter is bringing home in the backpack. And it's the, very complicated. Well, and there's some shame. They're, they're embarrassed. Oh my gosh. And then how can they better advocate for their son or daughter if yeah. they can't advocate for themselves? So it's a yeah. terrible cycle. It's an intergenerational mm-hmm. cycle of illiteracy and poverty. So that's what I did. And as you can tell, I, I was very passionate yeah, about it yeah. and still am. Well, there's a lot of, you know, like you said, ignorance or just a lot of information that people don't understand around that issue or, or many of the issues that nonprofits address for that simple fact that people are just not aware of it. So you're the advocate. You right. as the EDU, you're coming in there and you're saying, this is the reality and this is why I'm asking you for this money. It isn't for, you know, because yeah. we're, I've got a condo in Boca. You know, right. it's, it's because <laughs> I want these folks yeah. to be able to yeah. teach. So when I'm asking you for a million dollars and quarter that is going for bus fare, this is why. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, it's so important. So, yeah. you know, again, my heart goes out to and my hat's off to those people who are in that field yeah. still. Yeah. God bless them. A dear friend of mine who I had known since junior high school um, in South Florida, he's a successful business person in Atlanta, and I kind of talked to him into being on our board <laughs> and later became board chair. He's the one who's still He's still in he's still Yeah, good waving for him. the flag and out there doing it. David Peterson, if you ever hear this, I love you. He's he's still doing it. I'm gonna so. track him down. I'm gonna send him this. <laughs> so from there you went you, you said I'm 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 still liking this nonprofit work. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna go one more step. Yeah. And that's when you went to the YMCA or Y. Actually, I went back to the Atlanta Girls oh, okay. School. I had done this work at Literacy Action for five years, and um, you know, we had a new curriculum. We had good people in charge of programs and everything. And at the Atlanta Girls School, they were trying to launch a capital campaign. The head of school had trouble hiring the right person to be the a development person development Mm -hmm. director and so i thought you know five years i'm kind of ready for a change and this would be a step back the weight of the world wouldn't be on me just the weight of raising money money (laughs) and so i went back there and i was the development director for a couple of years and i loved that so to be able to be with those young women a few, not many, but a few who I had known as little girls mm. um, or when they started as sixth graders, they were now in high school. Uh, my husband and I, and luckily my husband was part of it for a very short time. We were the 
the golf coaches. I just went out because, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be outside with yeah. the girls. He actually knew what he was doing. And um, I had an advisory. It's what a, a, every faculty member has a, a group of it. Um, of students who are in their advisory and it's just a chance for 30 minutes a day you sit down and you, you talk and so I talked them into letting me have a, an advisory group and so it, it was a wonderful experience yeah. I love being there with the girls so I did that a couple of years and then I forget who approached me about this but the the person who had been the CEO of the YWCA for many, many years mm -hmm. uh, left uh, for another position and, and pretty quickly. So someone told me about that. So I ended up uh, talking with their board about that, and I was there. For... Now, did you start out as an interim position? No. No? That seems to be a pattern with no. you anymore. <laughs> no. But that was another one that was, there were a lot of, issues sure, fundraising sure, issues sure. and uh, a lot of programs that need to be enhanced or done away right, with right. and so it's not always the most popular person uh, <laughs> we worked with several we one of the organizations i worked with we worked with affiliates so a lot of our all of our affiliates were, were nonprofits, and we ran into that a lot of time where a longtime ed either moved on or passed away and then a new person comes in and they realize oh wow we've got to do xyz we've yeah. got to let this person go or this program we have to cut until you know you have to you have to get your house in order you do to be able to survive you do and then you got to build from yeah. there yeah. you can go for a little while maybe four or five years with what feels like a house of cars <laughs> and after that the whole thing is going to fall down if you aren't willing to do the hard right. stuff. Uh, and it kind of surprises me that I was willing to do it and, yeah. you know, um, have a, a tough, uh, a strong backbone. Sure. And not always thick skin, but enough to, you know, you, you have to be forward thinking. And if they've hired me to do this, then it's my job to really... Um, and I think that's what I have brought forward here I hope of trying to think about who is going to be sitting in our seats in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years that you can do a number of things that are it'll make you a hero real quickly <laughs> or a villain right <laughs> yeah but to do stuff but you've always got to be thinking about what kind of shape am I leaving this organization or this program in that I need to be thinking long term? Sure. And I think because I um, both from an entrepreneurial standpoint of founding the Atlanta Girls School, but also going into a couple of nonprofits before arriving here of seeing what happens when you are the one who has to go back in and fix it, that someone, and it's not to disparage any of those leaders from the past. Most of them were absolutely doing the very best they could at the time. It was a set of circumstances. Um, you know, the, it was difficult to pull out of. Sure. 
But in in both of those cases, we were able to do it, and I think we did it really quite well. Right, right, right. Well, I think, you know, just going back to something you said when you were opening the school, you know, you made it about the school. Like you said, we're not going to name it after me. We're not going to, this this is about the mission. Right. And when you focus on the mission, that is going to 99% of the time result in, you know, positive forward motion versus, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Other maybe not so positive yeah, <laughs> situations. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, uh, so you land here now at the St. Simon's Land Trust. So talk to me a little bit about what the land trust is, what you're doing. Like, wh- how are you getting your hands dirty? Literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty dirty on some yeah, days. Yeah. So the land trust was founded the same year as the Atlanta Girls School oh, in okay. 2000. I don't know if they had the three years leading up to literally opening the doors <laughs> but it was founded by a group of people really there were four mm-hmm. co-founders and then a, lots of other folks who joined the effort of believing that boy the island is changing quickly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if some of us don't come together and try to I don't think any of them any one of them was anti-development and we are still not anti-development right, right. but what we are is that trying to curb development that isn't thoughtful mm. or high density development or going in and clear cutting or doing away with the the natural resources the habitat all the things that has attracted most of us to come here and sure. live in the first place. And so those four people, and it was Ben, ben Slade, who was the founding board chair, Francis McCrary, Gene mm-hmm. Kaufman, and Jim Manning. Those mm-hmm. four came together. And I think they worked really, really hard, like we did at the mm-hmm. Atlanta Girls School, just saying, okay, we're not getting paid to, th- to do this, but we believe in it, and at some point you have to put the stake in the ground. And so they just were very tenacious and worked very, very hard. And one of the first sites they had was what is down here on Frederica Road, going north from our offices, the... John Gilbert Nature Trail, right. mm-hmm. and Mrs. Uh, Gilbert gave called Ben Slade, and he tells the story of she called and said, "Ben, I've got forty acres here on the marsh on Frederica Road. I don't want it to be developed. How would you feel about me giving it to the land trust?" And it took him about five minutes to get to her. <laughs> and I'll be right there. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so that was one of the first pieces of property. And then where's the the southernmost roundabout, or was the southernmost roundabout there at Frederica and Demry, they bought a filling, where it had been a filling station. Oh, correct. Did away, remediated mm-hmm. all of the issues of having tanks in the ground and uh, made that just a green, green, green spot space. On, space on the island. And then the old stables corner, right. which everyone knew, and that was an iconic piece of property. They did that. And eventually Cannons Point mm-hmm. Preserve that I talked about earlier, and on and on. And it was really the mission to preserve and protect pieces of property like that 
and to really help preserve the quality of mm-hmm. life for all of us now, but for future generations mm-hmm. and for the many, many people who visit here annually. And um, so I, to be involved in that is just important. Sure. Our, our daughter grew up coming here. Her first toe in the water was as a you know, a toddler, an infant, really. At East Beach? Uh, at East Beach, learned to ride her bike on East Beach, um, spent our summers here, and, and, and rode from the old Stables Corner out to Sea Island on horseback. Sure. And, and those type of things. And really wanting to make sure that we can do the best job we can of preserving what land is left. And then the other piece of this is which... I'm really passionate about, and I I know our board chair and the rest of the board and the staff, it's not just buying that land, but making sure that we can manage it and maintain it to highest levels in perpetuity. And as David Pope used to say, perpetuity is a pretty long time. (laughs) So it's not just that we have to raise money to buy the land, but also raising the funds that we can endow some effort to make sure that there are funds for people 20 years from now to still be able to when there's a major hurricane to come along sure that they have the funds to take down those trees and keep the property safe and to do things like the huge amount of scientific research that's going on at Cannons Point Preserve. We have a living shoreline there and uh, reforestation project, five phases of where they have taken seedlings often from the acorns of those 300-year-old trees out there and uh, have saplings and replanted but doing studies about what happens if you don't protect it from browse or if you don't water or whatever. And so that's really important, groundbreaking, so to speak, um, research sure. or reforestation. It's the first reforestation, maritime forest reforestation project research that's ever been done. So, so for folks to understand, it's not just, oh, there's a plot of land. We're going to preserve it. You're also studying it, learning about it, and exactly. also there's an education component to right. what the land trust is doing. Exactly. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You Definitely. know, with with I know at Cannon's Point there are volunteers that mm-hmm. will lead walks and yep. answer questions for folks about what the land is that are um, know about the wildlife that exists out there, etc. Correct. Exactly. We have docents who are there. It's open to the public. Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, 9 to 3. At Cannon's Point. At Cannon's Point. So the public can go there, but we also have school groups that come, mm-hmm. uh, schools that have summer camps, public schools from you know across the state, and they come down. So we have um, uh, a lab there where they can take samples out of the river and look at what those samples are, the living shoreline. So we have partnerships with the College of Coastal Georgia, University of Georgia, uh, as you and I were talking about earlier, Purdue University and New Mexico State um, 
University, because those two guys, the professors at those last two universities, they grew up on the Georgia coast. So they know the importance of maritime forest and old oak growth, our live oaks, which not only protect the mainland from um, sea rise and those type of things, they protect it from fires. It's the kind of trees that can... withstand forest fires and and it also changes the soil and brings uh helps create ongoing um biodiversity and strong lasting habitat for other plants and wildlife birds fish blah 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 you know so (laughs) um I, i don't really know again ignorance is you seem to know quite a bit it's impressive. Well, I learn something every day from our staff. Who, who uh, Stephanie Knox, our preserve manager out at Cannons Point, and others. They have such great knowledge of habitat, plants, um, animals, all those things. So I learn something from them every day. And Susan Shipman, our board chair, who was at DNR for years, mm-hmm. she is a great naturalist, and all of our other partnerships. And out at Cannon's Point, what a lot of people don't understand is we have different task force that advise, help provide oversight, and are working with our staff and board all the time. We have an educational task force, so they have helped to create lesson plans for Mm -hmm. when teachers do go out there. Um, the environmental task force, and on and on. So lots of people involved. Sure, sure. Now, you mentioned school groups going out to mm-hmm. Cannons Point, and I know you guys just launched a new program for for school-age kids, right? Right. It is our Passport to Preservation. And this, uh, it's a little 16-page little booklet, and it has in there um, a map of St. Simon's and our properties that are open to the public where families can go out on. And then it provides all kinds of activities for school-aged children, probably pre-K, maybe a little younger, up to fifth grade or so. Different activities, word search, but it uses vocabulary that we hope that they're using in their school programs. The Marsh Lab here at Oglethorpe Point Elementary School and the Ocean, Ocean Lab at St. Uh, Simon's Elementary School, Frederica Academy, others. We are providing copies to most of those schools. We also are, um, it was the, so this is just, it's, you know, sort of hot off the press. Yeah, here. no, I mean, you guys just uh, launched it this week, we right? We did, yeah. It was um, an insert in the local magazine, Elegant Island Living. We did 10,000 inserts in that magazine. So, and then we will also have them at the visitor center, the Welcome Center at the Golden cool. Isles Convention and Visitors Bureau. So that people who are vacationing here, yeah. here on spring break, can look at this, go out on our properties, and... Um, you know, as one of the people who gave us a blurb for it said, kids are going to be loving, we hope, this, uh, and learning without them even realizing that they're learning. So. Right, right. Now, I know in our day and age, it's great to put an mm-hmm. app together and then use your phone, but I think it's great that this is actually 
a booklet. Yeah, that it folks, is. That kids but can... there are QR codes on this, so. But you got to start with the book. We got to start with the book. <laughs> um, but we also know that maybe people who are out of town, if they can't reach this, they can download a printable sure. copy of it from our website. But people can use their iPhones for uh, QR codes. Um, to locate where the different properties are. We want it to be as interactive as possible. Sure. But this really came, it's one of the gifts, uh, with quotes around the word gifts, from the pandemic. Mm. Uh, as I had mentioned to you earlier, we had so many things planned for our 20th anniversary, and most of those were big events, and we were going to have different things on each one of our properties, whether it was a sing-along or family bike ride from one end of the island to the other, our usual um, Live Oak Society reception, gala, right. gala yeah. big gala at the Cloister, our Oyster, Oyster Rose. We were able to do that because oh, that right. was in January right. 2020, but we couldn't do it this year. But all these things, it was bringing people together in close contact, all the things we couldn't do. So out of that, we realized, okay, all these children are having to be learning virtually sure. right now. The schools have closed temporarily. They're all at home. Their parents are climbing the walls. And so we began to do things like virtual um, virtual visits to our properties and our outdoor classrooms so that families could download those, the outdoor classroom worksheets. And if they could go to them on the properties, great. But if not, they could visit on the virtual visits and say, okay, did you find any feathers here? What birds did you mm -hmm. see? What kind of... Um, trees, plants, any wildlife. So those were successful and families really seemed to love it. And as, you know, I think with most of us, we thought summer 2020, certainly fall, we're out of <laughs> yeah. this, we're back to normal, and that wasn't happening. So we have a group called the St. Simons Land Trust Ambassadors, and those are younger professionals who come in, they maybe aren't at a point in their lives where they're ready to serve on a board for a lot of different reasons. But we use them to advise us. What do you think young families want? And they had planned some activities for 2020, including this bike ride that I mentioned, and maybe in our backyard here at the Land Trust, some picnics and different things. So they began talking about a passport for kids. The kids could come here with their families and they could pick up this and they would know what land trust properties were open to the public. Sure. And, and so we took that to the next step. We began to design it and we got funding for it through our sponsors and we talked to educators and different people. So this is something I think it's back to what I was saying earlier. It's not only buying the property, but making sure people get out on the property. They understand the importance of conserving sure. habitat on a really rare habitat on a barrier island like ours. And then educating the next sure. generation and the next and the next so that they, uh, they begin to know what habitat is and they're not having to wait till they're in high school sure. or 
or college. Get them while they're young. Get them while they're young, yeah. And our donor base, which has been so generous and wonderful and active for these past 21, 22 years now, we're all getting gray hairs (laughs) or fully like a gray head like mine. It's an older um, population. So we want to make sure not just to be grooming the next generation of donors, but the next and the next and the next generation of those who feel passionate sure. about this. Sure. And will be the ones who are out there on the properties. And and, and I think we're doing that through this and our young ambassadors group and, and others. And I would imagine that at some point in the not too distant future, you're going to have somebody working here or leading the land trust that said, I got my passport and that's <laughs> yeah. what inspired me. Yeah, wouldn't right? that be wonderful? Wow. That, that's what I hope. Well, yeah. I think I think you're on the right path. Um, Emily, I know I want to be mindful of time. You've been very gracious um, to telling your story. I've got one more question yeah. and you can talk as long as you want about it. But since, <laughs> or, or since, since kind of running or endurance is part of the game here, I want to know or tell the folks quickly about your, Wayne, your walk from coast to coast uh, with the Wainwright Walk, which is a, at the U, in the UK, correct? Right. It is... Because uh, I'm sure we could do an hour on that alone. Oh, yeah. that That's just one of the top five things I've ever done in my life. It was wonderful. This podcast so, being at least in the top five, right? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah this yeah. is probably two. Number okay. two after the podcast. The... Alfred Wainwright is, most Americans, or at least I didn't know this term, was a fell walker. So in in the UK, the... Well, there's fell running. There's so fell running, mm-hmm. too, and many of those passed me by <laughs> on the on the coast to coast. But he, he wrote different books about fell walking, uh, the Pinine Way, all these different ones. But he also decided there should be a walk across England. So there is no real trail, but it is called the Wainwright Coast to Coast. Gotcha. And it starts in St. Bees on the on the Irish Sea, uh, on the eastern shore of England in the north area. And it goes through three or four national parks and it ends uh, ends on the North Sea okay. at Robins Hood Bay. So it's basically 200 miles of walking across England. So this dear friend of mine, she had done all kinds of hiking. She's always up for adventures. And she, I could never do these things because I was working. And she... You're busy starting schools. That's yeah, why. yeah. And she was instrumental in the school as well. Um, it's Amy Conley, if, Amy, if you're listening, if you ever hear this. Amy Conley was putting together this... Some friends of her, some British friends told her about the coast to coast. And I thought, I'm retired. I can do this now. I can do this. We moved to St. Simon's as retirees. And I had done lots of gardening and golfing and different things. And so this was supposed to take place in May 2016. Okay, I've got a year to train to get ready. So I started doing that, walking at least five miles a day and with some friends longer on weekends. Amy and a couple of other people and I did longer hikes, either up in Highlands, North Carolina or different places. So we did it. And um, so it was in May 2016. Okay. We flew into 
oh gosh, not Richmond. Where was it we flew into? Anyway, flew into a um, place and then drove up to to St. B's and and we started there a morning or two after we arrived. And we hiked anywhere from eight or nine miles to 24, 25 miles a day. Wow. And that was usually based on how difficult the terrain was. If there were um, steep inclines, lots of up and down, then those would be shorter days. Um, but it wasn't just, technical, uh, you know, was there any of the trails through the parks that were technical, like a lot of roots or rocks, or was it pretty flat or she's giving me a weird look? <laughs> yeah, this, this was, this was tough, okay. you know? Um, yeah, a lot of, I didn't rock. mean to imply that it, that you're not tough. I'm yeah. just asking what was no, the it, terrain? It like? was not St. Simon's Island. Um, <laughs> Flat. flat. In fact, that was the most difficult thing about training here. Yeah, there's because no elevation. There's, there's no elevation except on that bridge uh, going over to Jekyll. Right. And I did that once and decided I won't live to get to England. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, there were lots of steep, steep inclines, rug, rugged area. And we were going through National Forest. Sure. Um, the trail wasn't really, there was no trail the there were some signs along the okay. way sometimes you know so a little sure. thing like this round a little about the size of a baseball that said Wainwright or uh something like that so usually we and when I say we it means the people who knew how to do this along on the trip not me but we were using compasses sure. and GIS mm -hmm. that type of thing got lost quite a number of times but we, so we were, we had our rain gear uh -huh. in our backpacks and usually that day's lunch and enough water. We did have a company that would pick up our luggage okay. where we had stayed the night before and take it to the next. So it's not like it was so rugged that we were carrying everything we sure. needed and camping out. You know, we were staying at little bed and breakfast ends, some nice, some not so. And um, in different characters along the way, I'm sure. Yeah, oh, it was just. But we were walking in Great Britain. Um, I forget what it's called, but hikers, walkers, have the right to walk on anyone's land. Oh, okay. Not just in the national. So parks. open land. I mean, it's open land. Open land. So much of this time, we were walking in people's. Um, in the back of their their farms, farm or property, correct? You know, uh, saw millions of sheep. We were walking <laughs> through grazing land, yeah. uh, climbing over uh, those stone walls, yeah. um, dry stone walls, or through the little kissing gates and different things like that. Fording a few creeks. We were extremely lucky in that the weather uh, was kind to us. Yeah. It's the that area of Great Britain is just about the rainiest part in England. And so some really hardy people who do this, they're rained on every day and lots of blowing wind. And so we had read everything and we knew what it could be. We had rain a couple of days, but it, we were very, very fortunate. And so, how long did it take you? Um, I think it was 15 days. Okay. We had two days off, okay. but it was really... 200 miles. Nice. Um, 
How many shoes did you go through? Really just one. Just and so one? I'll give a little plug here to, um, what, what's it, what's, now I can't, REI, REI, isn't it it? Well, the, 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 was it a shoe that they, yeah, okay. the, a or boot, a hiking boot? A hiking okay. boot. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, they were so great because I kept trying out so many boots and I would call and say, this isn't working and I've got to hike 200 miles that send it back and they would get me yeah, another, customer either another size or another brand or whatever. So no, I had the same, I would not have wanted to try to break in, um, a new pair of boots on that. And in fact, one person did, and he ended up with horrible, horrible, horrible blisters on the bottoms of it. We all ended up with blisters, but some worse, worse than, than others. others, but no, I'm the same pair of boots the whole way just lots of different pairs of socks that we would rinse out every night and but it was a, an amazing oh, I'm experience sure. just fabulous well maybe one of these days we'll just do a podcast on that experience because uh, there's a lot of questions that i have but i know you're a very busy lady that is running a, a very important organization here on saint simon so whether it's Taking the first step in a starting a school or the first step of a 200-mile hike. Yeah. Emily, I appreciate your taking the time with us, talking with us today, and good luck with the next adventure that comes your way. Yeah. There's always another one, isn't there? Oh, knowing <laughs> you, I know there is. <laughs> Thank you, Rogelio. This has been great. I loved it.